Section 11 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Rousseau. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 28, Francis I and Charles V, Part 11. The negotiation had been commenced, as early as the 20th of July, at Toledo, between the ambassadors of Francis I and the advisers of Charles V, but without any symptom of progress. Francis I, since his arrival in Spain, had been taken from strong castle to strong castle, and then removed to Madrid, everywhere strictly guarded, and leading a sad life, without Charles V's coming to visit him or appointing him any meeting place. In vain did the emperor's confessor, the bishop of Osma, advise him to treat Francis I generously, and so lay upon him either the obligation of thankfulness or the burden of ingratitude. The majority of his servants gave him contrary counsel. I know not what you mean to do, wrote his brother, the Archduke Ferdinand. But, if I were wise enough to know how to give you good counsel, it seems to me that such an opportunity should not be lost, but that you should follow up your good fortune, and act in such wise that neither the King of France nor his successors should have power hereafter to do harm to you or yours. That, too, was Charles V's own way of thinking, but, slow and patient as he was by nature, he relied upon the discomforts and the wearisomeness of prolonged captivity and indecision for tiring out Francis I and overcoming his resistance to the harsh conditions he would oppose upon him. The regent, Louise, made him an offer to go herself and treat with him, at Pepignan, for the king's liberation, but he did not accept that overture. The Duke of Ancon, son-in-law of Louise, had died at Lyon, unable to survive the shame of his flight at the Battle of Pavia. And the regent hinted that her daughter Marguerite, three months a widow, would be happy if she could be agreeable to his imperial majesty. But Charles let the hint drop without a reply. However, at the end of August, 1525, he heard that Francis I was ill, from great melancholy he had fallen into a violent fever. The population of Madrid was in commotion. Francis I had become popular there. Many people went to pray for him in the churches. The doctors told the emperor that there was fear for the invalid's life, and that he alone could alleviate the malady by administering some hope. Charles V at once granted the safe conduct which had been demanded of him for Marguerite of France, and on the 18th of September, he himself went to Madrid to pay a visit to the captive. Francis, on seeing him enter the chamber, said, So your majesty has come to see your prisoner die? You are not my prisoner, answered Charles, but my brother and my friend. I have no other purpose than to give you your liberty and every satisfaction you can desire. Next day, Marguerite arrived. Her mother, the regent, had accompanied her as far as Pont-Saint-Esprit. 
she had embarked on the twenty seventh of august at egmort and disembarking at barcelona had gone to madrid by litter in order to somewhat assage her impatience she had given expression to it in the following tender stanzas for the bliss that awaits me so strong is my yearning that yearning is pain one hour is a hundred years long my litter it bears me in vain it moves not or seems to recede such speed would i make if i might oh the road it is weary indeed where lies at the end my delight i gaze all around me all day for some one with tidings to bring not ceasing ne'er doubt me to pray unto god for the health of my king i gaze and when none is decried then i weep and what else if you ask to my paper my grief i confide this this is my sorrowful task o welcome be he who at length shall tap at my door and shall cry the king to new health and new strength is returning the king will not die then she who were now better dead will run the news-bearer to see and kiss him for what he hath said that her brother from danger is free Frances was not free from danger when his sister arrived. She took her post at his side. On the 25th of September a serious crisis came on, and he remained for some time without speaking or hearing or seeing. Marguerite had an altar set up in her chamber, and all the French of the household, great lords and domestics, knelt beside the sick man's sister and received the communion from the hands of the Archbishop of Embrun who, drawing near the bed, entreated the king to turn his eyes to the holy sacrament. Francis came out of his lethargy, and asked to communicate likewise, saying, God will cure me, soul and body. He became convalescent, and on the 20th of October he was sufficiently recovered for Marguerite to leave Madrid, and go and resume negotiations at Toledo, whither Charles V had returned. The day but one after her arrival she wrote to the king, The emperor gave me courteous and kind reception, and after coming to meet me at the entrance of this house, he used very kind and courteous language to me. He desired that he and I should be alone in the same room, and one of my women to keep the door. This evening I will send you word of what has been done, entreating you, my lord, to put on before Sir Alençon, the king's custodian, an air of weakness and weariness, for your debility will strengthen me and will hasten my dispatch, which seems to me slower than I can tell you, as well for the sake of seeing you liberated, which you will be by God's help, as of returning and trying whether your dear hand can be of any use to you. Marguerite was impressed by the good will she discovered at the court of Toledo in respect of the King of France, his liberation, and the establishment of peace. She received from the people in the streets, as well as from the great lords in their houses, the most significant proofs of favor. Charles V took umbrage at it, and had the Duke of Infantado, amongst others, informed that, if he wished to please the emperor, neither he nor his sons must speak to Madame d'Alençon. But, said she, I am not tabooed to the ladies, to whom I will speak double. 
she contracted a real intimacy with even the sister of Charles V, Eleanor, widow of the King of Portugal, whom Charles had promised to the Duke of Bourbon, and between whom and her brother, King Francis, Marguerite set brewing a marriage, which was not long deferred. But, in spite of her successes at the court, and even in the family of the emperor, Marguerite had no illusions touching the small chance of bringing her grand object of negotiation to a happy issue. Everyone tells me, she wrote, that he loves the king, but there is small experience of it. If I had to do with good sort of people, who understand what honor is, I would not care, but the contrary is the case. She did not lose courage, however. She spoke to the emperor so bravely and courteously, says Brantome, that he was quite astounded, and she said still worse to those of his council, at which she had audience. There she had full triumph of her good speaking and haranguing, with an easy grace in which she was not deficient, and she did so well with her fine speaking that she made herself rather agreeable than hateful or tiresome, that her reasons were found good and pertinent, and that she remained in high esteem with the emperor, his council, and his court. But neither good and pertinent reasons, nor the charm of eloquence in the mouth of a pleasing and able woman, are sufficient to make head against the passions and interests of the actors who are at a given moment in possession of the political arena. It needs time, a great deal of time, before the unjust or unreasonable requirements and determinations of a people, a generation, and the chief of a state become acknowledged as such and abandoned. At the negotiations entered upon, in 1525, between Francis I and Charles V, Francis I was prompt in making large and unpalatable concessions. He renounced his pretensions, so far as Italy was concerned, to the Duchy of Milan, to Genoa, and to the Kingdom of Naples, his suzerainty over the courtships of Flanders and Artois, and possession of Hayden and Tournay. He consented to reinstate Duke Charles of Bourbon in all his hereditary property and rights, and to pay three millions of crowns in gold for his own ransom. But he refused to cede Provence and Dauphiné to the Duke of Bourbon as an independent state, and to hand over the Duchy of Burgundy to Charles V, as heir of his grandmother, Mary of Burgundy, only daughter of Charles the Rash. Charles V, after somewhat lukewarmly persisting, gave up the demand he had made on behalf of the Duke of Bourbon, for having Provence and Dauphiné erected into an independent state. But he insisted absolutely, on his own behalf, in his claim in the Duchy of Burgundy as a right and a condition, sine qua non, of peace. The question at the bottom of the negotiations between the two sovereigns lay thus. The acquisition of Burgundy was, for Charles V, the crowning point of his victory and of his predominance in Europe, the giving up of Burgundy was for Francis I a lasting proof of his defeat and a dismemberment of his kingdom. One would not let his prisoner go at any price but this. The other would not purchase at this price even his liberty and his restoration to his friends. In this extremity Francis I took an honorable and noble resolution. In October 1525 he wrote to Charles V, Sir, 
my brother i have heard from the archbishop of embrun and my premier president at paris of the decision you have expressed to them as to my liberation and i am sorry that what you demand of me is not in my power but feeling that you could not take a better way of telling me that you mean to keep me prisoner forever than by demanding of me what is impossible on my part i have made up my mind to put up with imprisonment being sure that god who knows that i have not deserved a long one being a prisoner of fair war will give me strength to bear it patiently and i can only regret that your courteous words which you were pleased to address to me in my illness should have come to nothing the resolution announced in this letter led before long to the official act which was certain to be the consequence of it in november fifteen twenty five by formal letters patent francis i abdicated the kingship which he could not exercise ordered that his eldest son the dauphin francis then eight years old should be declared crowned anointed and consecrated most christian king of france and that his grandmother louise of savoy duchess of angouleme or in default of her his aunt marguerite duchess of alençon should be regent of the kingdom if it should please god that we should recover our personal liberty and be able to proceed to the government and conduct of our kingdom in that case our most dear and most beloved son shall quit and give up to us the name and place of king all things re-becoming just as they were before our capture and captivity the letters patent ordered the regent to get together a number of good and notable personages from the three estates in all the districts counties and good towns of france to whom either in a body or separately one after another she should communicate the said will of the king as above in order to have their opinion counsel and consent thus during the real king's very captivity and so long as it lasted france was again about to have a king whom the states-general of france would be called upon to support with their counsels and adhesion this resolution was taken and these letters patent prepared just as the expiry of the safe conduct granted to the princess marguerite and consequently just when she would have to return to france charles v was somewhat troubled at the very different position in which he was about to find himself when he would have to treat no longer at madrid with a captive king but at paris with a young king out of his power and with his own people about him marguerite fully perceived his embarrassment from toledo where she was she wrote to her brother after having been four days without seeing the emperor when i went to take leave i found him so gracious that i think he is very much afraid of my going those gentry yonder are in a great fix and if you will be pleased to hold firm i can see them coming round to your wishes but they would very much like to keep me here doing nothing in order to promote their own affairs as you will be pleased to understand charles v in fact signified to the king his desire that the negotiations should be proceeded with at madrid or toledo never ceasing to make protestations of his pacific intentions francis i replied that for his part he would not lay any countermand on the duchess that he would willingly hear what the emperor's ambassadors had to say 
but that, if they did not come to any conclusion as to a peace and his own liberation, he would not keep his own ambassadors any longer, and would send them away. Marguerite set out at the end of November. She at first traveled slowly, waiting for good news to reach her and stop her on the road. But, suddenly, she received notice from Madrid to quicken her steps. According to some historians, it was the Duke of Bourbon who, either under the influence of an old flame, or in order to do a service to the king he had betrayed, sent word to the princess that Charles V, uneasy about what she was taking with her to France, had an idea of having her arrested the moment her safe conduct had expired. According to a more probable version, it was Francis I himself who, learning that three days after Marguerite's departure, Charles V had received a copy of the royal act of abdication, at once informed his sister, begging her to make all haste. And she did so to such purpose that, making four days' journey in one, she arrived at Salcis in the eastern Pyrenees, an hour before the expiry of her safe conduct. She no doubt took to her mother, the regent, the details of the king's resolutions and instructions, but the act itself containing them, the letters patent of Francis I, had not been entrusted to her. It was Marshal de Montmorency, who, at the end of December, 1525, was the first bearer of them to France. End of section 11